Hello, and welcome to Code Embers, your informatics low-key healthcare podcast that feeds on data and connects concepts to the elements. I'm John Manning, an EM doc and informatician in Charlotte, North Carolina, the good queen city. And I'm Mike Wang. I am a hospitalist and clinical informaticist practicing in the Bay Area. All of the views and discussions that we have are uh, our own thoughts and opinions, uh, which we are happy to share uh, with anyone. How are you doing, Mike? Good. How, how, is, uh, how are COVID things going over on your side? Uh, pretty well, pretty well. Um, staying masked, getting fully vaccinated. Uh, somewhat recently actually had the uh, chance to um, help uh, some of our region vaccinate by actually administering vaccines, which I thought was really nice. Uh, quoting the person who invited me, and I think this is accurate, um, it's a nice chance to recharge and um, see people smile. And certainly they were <laughs> thankful. Um, how's it been on your side? Uh, it's been okay. I think the barrier has been fairly lucky um, with our with our numbers. Certainly um, doing much better than Southern California has been in the last few months. That's fair. So, you know, this podcast is primarily designed around clinical informatics and the things that are related to that. And I think a lot of the people that may be listening um, may be considering or questioning, well, what is informatics in the first place? Um, and I'm curious as to what your uh, what your thought or perspective or definition is uh, for informatics, and I will give the same. Yeah, that's a good question. I think uh, it's interesting. I think that's, that's a definition that in practice has really evolved for me over time. Um, you know, I think when I first started thinking about clinical informatics, it, it just felt like you had a bunch of techie doctors who were uh, good at troubleshooting their printers uh, and eventually kind of got uh, got moved into more technology-focused roles just because they were willing to be techie. I think um, as as things have changed and evolved, um, it's it's become a much more sophisticated kind of uh, field now. Like Like we now do a lot of... Uh, big data work. We do a lot of implementation work and a lot of change management work um, that I think both of us got out of our clinical informatics subspecialty. I think if I were to sum up um, clinical informatics in you know an elevator pitch that I give to my friends and family who are not <laughs> in the space, which is most of them, it, it comes down to uh, managing just the flow of information in the hospital. And uh, I'm, I'm a hospitalist, so I'm biased towards the inpatient side, obviously. But I think just managing the flow of information in the healthcare system—how do you get, how do you get data from um, from various parts of the healthcare organization to the right people who need to see it at the right time? Uh, I think a lot of it does revolve around sort of the um, clinical decision-making kind of five rights of, of information. Um, so uh, I, I think in a lot of ways it, it's it's a funny definition because it. Uh, broadens to some extent the definition beyond just like things on the computer because things like faxes and and pictures are, are often also information and not always digital. So um, I, I like to think that those are actually within our domain now as well. Yeah, no, I agree. No, and um, the, the elevator pitch that I typically give is um, how you deal with, store, and communicate data uh, for information. So information is the root word. We work with data, and that could be the apps on your phone. That could be your electronic health records. That could be, um, you know, the uh, sheet of paper that you write for a or that you use for a Glasgow coma scale or things along those lines. Uh, and you're right. I agree that the information that can be on a 
piece of paper uh, when you're using that to add to uh, your clinical care and clinical practice. Um, harnessing and managing said data, I think, fits within informatics. There is within our core content, uh, which is available on uh, American Board of Preventative Medicine's website, and I'll link this in the show notes, um, but <laughs> we have core content available and this fits within cognitive bioinformatics, like how you are thinking and how that impacts other people. Uh, and so one example is internal cognition is how much you can keep in memory, both long and short term, um, as well as the, the working memory that you have. And the external cognition being um, I use the term like a, a GCS on a wall or, you know, things that you were using as a decision support tool within your EHR is a good example. And then distributed cognition is multiple people coming together for the care of a single patient, uh, much in the same way as you have a bunch of people that are, you cannot have one person uh, run a submarine. It has to be done together as a team. Uh, and I think the way that we are managing and communicating said data for those ways that we think are really important. Yeah. It's funny that, you know, I know we've, I've, you and I have talked about this definition for what the, you know, the last four or five years. And it's, it's funny that we've kind of converged on like a very similar definitions. Yeah. It's almost like we've <laughs> talked about this a lot for some reason. <laughs> With that in mind, how do you define, well, I guess we could at least introduce uh, the koi pond because I think, some aspect of that came from our shared discussions as fellows trying to figure out what informaticians or informaticists actually do and what career options that we had available to us. Yeah, I mean, this is the work that we should probably also link in the uh, in the in the show notes. Yeah. Um, uh, I you know I think you know we we came up with this. It was funny. We, we were such you know wide-eyed, open, naive uh, fellows at the time we first came up with this idea. Actually, it was even it was even that first year, right? The when that first AMIA that we yeah that we hung we met, I think yeah uh, twenty sixteen um, where we started discussing this yeah 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 wow, it's been a long time twenty sixteen <laughs> <laughs> yes um, and, and and just to define it because there have been. Um, you know, we had several iterations of this, um, but uh, what remained stable of their years was KOI. Uh, and we're, mm -hmm. uh, I guess we're going to start with our first element analogy of fish in a pond. Uh, so we're going <laughs> to tie everything to water today. Uh, but KOI uh, stands for knowledge, operations, and innovation. And uh, you're always working with data, but if you were taking said data to advance your overall knowledge of something, that's K. And a good example with that would be uh, some of the excellent work that you do with data warehouse queries for EHR access logs, um, specifically looking at burnout, or you can do that for provider efficiency or things like that. Mm -hmm. O is when you take insights from your data and apply them to the majority of your end users. Uh, and so if you think about the diffusion of innovation curve, that's pretty much everyone. And you can do this with, you know, this is where change management um, really shines and project management and understanding um, the entire life cycle of an informatics space project uh, that is heavy into operations. And then innovation is this is stuff that is a little too early to deploy broadly. Um, so usually the people that are the far left of the diffusion of innovation curve, or if it's so new, you're, you're creating brand new technology that did not previously exist. 
Um, so that's writing code or intellectual property or things like that. So you take those three parts, always with data, but done in certain ways, and then combine it based on where you're practicing or what your efforts are, be it inside a health system, outside, or the policy and governance that keeps it healthy. And now you have a three by three table of all the things <laughs> that you do and, um, and where your skill set lies. And yeah, every, every informatician is different and unique. And we liked Koi because it, it really helped fit with the analogy because all of them have different patterns, colors, and scales. Yeah, and I, I think the to, to give context beho- behind why we came up with this framework, it really was just, you know, when we were thinking about career paths, it was it was difficult to figure out which, you know, portions of roles fit into what things, and figure out what skill sets you needed to really develop to prepare yourself for a given um, part, you know, part of the KOI. Um, and I think it, it really, certainly for me, has has helped uh, prioritize uh, what skills I need to develop. Uh, in order to be prepared to serve roles in the various, um, you know, parts of that framework. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think that's also the value of the people that are going through informatics fellowship now is that you need to learn at least a basic skill set of each of those. Um, well, um, Howard Silverman wrote about domains of clinical informatics practice, um, and we define this as focus areas. So KOI are your focus areas that really define kind of the tasks that you're doing because implementing for the majority is very different than writing code or doing, you know, uh, another good example of like a design sprint or doing design thinking work and, you know, A-B testing and stuff like that. It's very different from going heavily into a uh, data warehouse or a data lake and finding the information from scratch and then tying that to your knowledge of clinical practice. It's a very different wheelhouse. Yep. And all needed, and all part of the same profession, but almost like subs, you know, they're almost like subspecialties uh, within within the within the specialty. Yeah, and and you know, each each person has their own interests um, and strengths, and you know, the argument that we give is um, we think that it augments your core content because if you have a core content interest in X, Y, or Z, so my example, my interest is human factors and usability but it could just as easily be cybersecurity. So let's say you have cybersecurity as your stated interest, which is extremely important right now. Well, you can take the knowledge from this um, and just turn that into publications or you know, policy and guidance of how we as a nation should be addressing healthcare cybersecurity uh, or you know, speaking at academic events. Or you could be implementing this in your system or you could be creating the new algorithms and ways that you can approach uh, keeping your health system safe, be it from the perspective of inside the health system uh, or outside, because uh, a lot of informaticians are in the vendor space these days. They are entrepreneurs and innovators that are uh, across the board. Some are inside of a, a big subspecialty organization, uh, and some are... Uh, for a large vendor or, you know, a small down to a uh, small startup. Yep. Or, or startup, startups of one. <laughs> or, <laughs> or half of or one. Or an N of one. <laughs> yes. Startup, start, start us with an FTE of like 0.2. <laughs> yes. That's true. But, you know, realistically, I think the benefit being, um, especially if you're going through a fellowship, is to 
learn what's important as a whole. Be as broad as you can so that you understand um, how to adapt. Because I think we as informaticians or informaticists do a very good job of adapting. Um, yep. We can't even pick a title. Uh, <laughs> but, um, but, but then lean into the strengths that you also have. Uh, and so yeah. that you can be very good at a lot of things, but hyper-specialize in the thing that you think is, is your best strength. Yeah. Well, do you, do you want to talk a little bit about sort of uh, maybe the value of the Clinical Informatics Fellowship, you know, what that's done for you personally and, and, uh, and sort of like what you think, if you have any thoughts on how fellowships should uh, move forward from here? Yeah. Well, uh, I'll just lead with the bias that they should follow Koi Pond. Uh, because <laughs> it makes sense, uh, and I think it was very helpful. And uh, the fellows that I've spoken to since we published this have been uh, pretty appreciative of, of that as a practice. Um, you know, I, in fellowship, I tracked my projects along that paradigm, and now years later, um, I guess it's been four years out almost, I still do that in terms of where I'm tracking where I spend my efforts. Uh, and, you know, I made a, uh, I'll just call this a spreadsheet of where my interests were and where I was keeping my, keeping track of my projects and putting a zero up to five of, you know, where, where within each of that three by three table, uh, my interest and my efforts would lie. Uh, and then I use that, you know, every maybe six months or a year, I'll look back and say, oh, well, how close am I? Understanding that that may mm-hmm. shift over time. And um, it's been relatively stable, I think, over the last two years. You know, my path is going to be different from another informaticians. Um, and I'm an emergency doctor by training, but my mentor was family medicine. And my mm-hmm. program director was a pathologist. And at some point in time, with the other fellows that were going through or around that training program, uh, we had seven fellows representing five different specialties of medicine. Yeah, you guys had a pretty diverse group. Of <laughs> we did, yeah. And and when you think about it, how how often or in how many other locations are you going to learn about something that is so drastically different than your primary area of practice? Uh, good yeah. example, we had for over a year, two pathologists and an emergency doctor <laughs> evaluating and handwriting timestamps of operating room term overtimes, patient out to patient in, <laughs> from a pediatric anesthesiologist Lean Six Sigma black belt so that we could do um, operational change management techniques. And that's really cool. I, I don't think you get that otherwise. Yeah. No, I mean, come on. We're, we're physicians, right? Our specialty is always the best one, and everybody else just doesn't appreciate what we do or... Uh, is as good at it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, there's uh, there's strength to that, and then there's challenge because I think if you're looking at the value of the physician informatician, which we'll be talking about at uh, Amy's clinical informatics conference upcoming, um, you know, one challenge is that physicians have gone through a large majority of their life in nonstop education. Um, you're <laughs> averaging at least 25 years up to. 27 to 30, just in school from kindergarten through graduation of fellowship. So that's a quarter century per informatician that is working in this system. So they are a little bit expensive, but all of that education and the knowledge and the value that they have that they can apply to all of their years of uh, guided 
clinical practice and practice beyond can apply in ways that I think are unique, just as unique as it is to work with uh, pharmacy uh, specialists who are in informatics, nursing informaticians, uh, dentistry, um, data analysts who specialize in that, developers, um, PhDs, biostatisticians, and librarians. So our strength is, I think, in large part, the extremely rigorous amount of medical education that we've had to undergo and really dive very deeply into. It is very difficult, I think, to go you know, even into medical school. And as you're going through that whole process, you learn a lot. And then if you mm-hmm. take those values and those elements that you learn and take it from a perspective of an informatician and then apply that around data and workflow and helping get blueprints before build and other aspects of, <laughs> you know, trying to make your life easier as a clinician for other people, then instead of just the care that you're doing for the service of individual patients, you're now on the population scale and you're doing this mm-hmm. to make your peers more efficient. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I don't think any of us are better than the other because I don't think we could work together without them. Uh, or without any of those other backgrounds or strengths, just like with, you know, when you're looking at it from the perspective of keeping that broad lens of different specialties and collaborating with people that are nowhere near your specialty. Um, I think there's really a lot of value in the physician informatician or informaticist, if you want to call us that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I don't think there's a standard term. Uh, no, and, a standard term hasn't hasn't congealed there either. <laughs> no, and you know it's a new specialty. I mean, we've only had eight years of board exams. Uh, it was yeah. first announced in September of 2011. They had their first yeah. uh, round of boards in October of 2013, and people have been doing informatics for decades. But yeah. as a board certified subspecialty of medicine through. Uh, pathology or through the American Board of um, Preventative Medicine, it's only eight years old by that definition. Yeah. And uh, we are also a subspecialty without RVUs uh, yeah. because we don't bill for our informatics practice, which then makes it difficult yeah. to justify our value unless you can find that hard return on investment. Yeah. And what's your favorite aspect of some of the stuff that you're doing today, Mike? Um. I mean, I think speaking to your point, it's the versatility um, and the flexibility around what I do. Uh, I generally like to think that I am very mission-driven and that I, I'm just, I like to look at what's going around in, in the areas where I have expertise in and figure out what things are broken um, and then figure out what needs to be solved to to address those issues. And so I think being an informaticist has really allowed me to um, kind of break down the institutional walls that I would have maybe been more stuck in as just like a pure like hospitalist, let's say, um, and really work with industry, work in academics and policy. Uh, it's just, you know, it allows me, it gives me a wider breadth of tools by which to solve problems, um, which, you know, really wouldn't have been available to me just if I was just a, uh, if I was just practicing medicine as a clinical hospitalist. Yeah. And, well, each of us has had a different path, as, as mentioned, <laughs> uh, because I think, you know, it, the more you talk to informaticians, the more you find some really cool stories. But you were a 
developer for uh, EHR vendor before you went into medicine, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, How was that translated over to what you do now? Oh, I mean that 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 job with the EHR vendor is where I first learned to do database querying, and and that has become almost a um, anchor um, in my career since then. Um, it was the fir- my first data exposure to. Well, it wasn't quite my first exposure to databases, but it was all, it was my first like experience being a professional data person, whatever that means. <laughs> yeah. Um, and and like I think just because I've had that skill set, it's it continues to be something around which I revolve. Uh, I certainly couldn't have predicted in 2006 that you know healthcare would be kind of on the trend that it is now with um, a lot of the consumer level kind of big data work. I mean, I, I did a lot of, uh, when I was doing research in college, I was, I had some sense that big data would come, but I always thought it would come from more of the omics data, um, like, because I was doing a lot of genetics research um, and and omics research. Um, so I kind of thought it would come from there, but I had no idea. Like, I certainly couldn't have anticipated that we would have, you know, super fancy smartphones and, like, you know, EKGs on watches. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's so funny to think back and... And just be like, oh, that's 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 like never going to happen, right? I mean, trying to consume said data without uh, a specialist or the ability to make it as easy for the end user is like trying to sip right. from a fire hose. You get nothing but noise well, and very little signal. Yeah, and I think even understanding who that end user is, right, is something that is oh yeah is not always fully appreciated, right? Is it, is it the patient? Is it the the physician? Usually, it's both. Um, and there's a lot of overlap between you know, what they want to consume, but it's, um, I, there's nuances that, that, and, and certain amounts of like validated, uh, actions, right. That need to be done for those two audiences. Yeah. Do you still use the jankiness scale? I do use the jankiness scale. Do you want to explain <laughs> what that is? Cause I love it. And I've, I've used that term, uh, where I work and it's spread, uh, to others. Oh, really? oh yeah. <laughs> Um, so, so as as someone who codes, and specifically someone who writes a lot of um, SQL reports to extract data, um, I started assigning a jankiness score to all, all the code that I wrote. Um, be, and those of you who have come from software backgrounds uh, can have some sense of this, which is basically like how much uh, how much do I think this output of the code that I wrote is complete jank? Um, so if something has a jankiness score of ten, like I literally looked at like the FAQ uh, and wrote like three lines of code around it. Like, please don't use this ever. This is like a proof of concept. Uh, whereas if I, I don't think I've ever gotten to a, like a jankiness score of like zero. The jankiness is always like, I would say my Mac, my minimum jankiness is like three or a four. Um, but that means I've probably invested like a hundred hours into a particular like set of, set of data. Yeah. Um, and, and essentially proving that it's true and it matches with the clinical picture. Uh, and yeah. so giving the example of when we were in the operating room for turnover times, we were handwriting in the timestamps. Uh, and then yeah. we looked at the, uh, the nurses and techs and people that were doing documentation and then yeah. dove into the warehouse to find exactly where those timestamps were. Um, and that gave us a very low uh, jankiness score, but you're not necessarily <laughs> going to be able to do that for every project that you do. Um, if you're making an app, as a good example, and I have a little bit of knowledge in that, but <laughs> um, if you are making an app, then um, if the screen skips or you get it where it's just not responding uh, or you get frames that get dropped, they call that jank. 
Uh, and you know, I think part of whenever we were having these discussions um, with my own institution was people were, uh, well, first off, I was explaining what, what jank was and then explaining why <laughs> some of these queries um, had a, a jankiness scale or score attached to them, um, <laughs> understanding that medical and clinical data requires finesse um, to look through and understand. I'm curious, sort of like along this uh, it's certainly related to the jankiness score. What percentage of your project time do you think is spent doing doing like validation um, of data? Uh, you know, it's interesting because these days I'm also working uh, every week, an hour and a half every week, uh, with uh, a data uh, a data analyst and billing specialist. Um, and in mm-hmm. part of it, we are doing data visualization, and in part of mm-hmm. it, we are doing data validation. Uh, and so it's a set amount of that for projects that, I mean, I kind of started almost four years ago. Um, <laughs> and it's always a never-ending target of making yeah. sure that the data that we have available match the clinical picture and doing it in a way that's useful and actionable for the, uh, for the people that are uh, consuming said data. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I, you know, all of the analytics work that I do, there's, is, it's, you know, if I do it purely unvalidated based on whatever's in the documentation, I would say it takes me like 20% of the time or 30% of the time to, to write those queries. But it, um, but I, I don't trust those. Um, like, and, and, you know, time and time again, when I go and see whether the uh, documentation lines up with the real world mm-hmm. uh, data, it's, you know, it, it doesn't. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it takes, it takes effort um, and it, it, it takes investment. You write your own queries. Um, mm-hmm. Do you use? Uh, do you connect it to R as well? Uh, sometimes uh, it, it's it's it depends on your environment, but like certainly for mine, the uh, it's I'll connect it to R if I need to automate some sort of like data extraction pipeline um, to pull it all the way through, like so I can do like basically hit run in R and it'll do the whole thing in twelve hours or something. Um, but if, if it's just a one-off thing, I, I usually won't. Cool. Awesome. What suggestions would you give for rising or aspiring informaticians who are interested in learning how to harness, uh, tools such as the ones that you use with your, um, within your knowledge bucket? We'll just leave it that way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I would say find a project, find something you care about. Um, find something you care about. Uh, if you are at an institution where um, they'll let you learn to write your own queries and things, take advantage of that because that is um, that is you know even if you don't end up like me and John and code, <laughs> yes, for, you know in your spare time slash you know for for research purposes, yeah. um, you know it just helps you understand um, what that process looks like and it helps you uh, communicate better with those people who are going to do your coding. Um, and you, a lot of times you can, you know, a lot of times you can anticipate better um, the, the roadblocks that they're going to run into than they can anticipate uh, because they don't have your clinical background. Uh, ultimately, as you work with that, you know, data people, they'll learn a little bit more about clinical medicine and develop the instincts there. Um, but often as a clinical informaticist, you're sort of the person who has to understand, like, understand the technology a little bit more to anticipate some of those roadblocks. Um, yeah, absolutely. But yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, I, I think it's, you know, it's very much, uh, uh, you know, code wins, right? Just uh, go do something. Um, and and if, if you have, I, I would say the best recommendation I, could, I would give to any aspiring clinical informaticist is is don't 
don't label yourself as non-technical. You, you know, if you consider yourself non-technical, there's no such thing as technical or non-technical in my mind. Um, it's sort of like, it's, it's almost like how much stubbornness do you have, um, to go and solve the problem that you want to solve? Like if, if it ends up being that, you know, you, your skill set and background make you more efficient in doing, managing non-technical things, great, go that direction. Um, but don't call yourself non-technical, um, because it's, it's, you have chosen not to be technical, which is fine. Yeah. But it doesn't, doesn't make you inherently non-technical. Yeah. I'm, I took zero developer classes in college. Exactly zero. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I was an applied physics minor. Uh, I took one <laughs> course that was around uh, going from the ones and zeros up to a similar language, but mostly like, <laughs> you know, you messing around with the circuitry. Um, but nothing oh, but in development. You, 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 but you, you, you did MATLAB. It's <laughs> an applied physics major. Yeah. Don't well, lie. <laughs> well, no comment. Uh, but, but, you know, I think that's what I would say just to add to that is um, even five or six years ago, uh, I also had considered myself uh, not a technical person or not a developer. Yeah, I'd done some things with you know, Microsoft Access, uh, some queries with that. And then I learned a little bit about, you know, the next thing for the project that I was doing right there. And then it built and, and then built and it kept building. And um, if you take just like one single small step outside of your comfort zone and then do that and learn it and get inspired by it and then take another step a few months later, maybe six, and then take another step. After two years, you will turn back and be impressed with the stuff that you've done. And, you know, you don't want to jump five steps in into something that is yeah. extremely difficult and you really just can't wrap your head around. But anyone can design, anyone can code, yeah. anybody can yeah. do these aspects that are important uh, well, for the path of informatics as a whole to yeah. advance. Yeah. I agree entirely. I mean, it's like, you know, especially for the physicians listening to this, right? Like, you've done... MCATs, you've done step one, step two, right? You've done a lot of tests that require a lot of logic. That is all coding is, and um, you have the skills to to code. Um, and, and it's really just a matter of whether it's a priority to you or not. And and you know if you if some and I would encourage anybody who feels blocked technically on a project they're working on to take a stab at doing it yourself. And you know what? Maybe or or ask somebody. Who does know who who does know how to do it? Who may not be able to help you for your project, but ask someone who would know how to do it, and just ask them like, hey, like, is there a way for me to do this quickly? You know, if I just learned it myself. Um, and if the answer is no, this is something that's going to take like a full time, like senior developer two years to code, then okay, maybe don't take that on. Um, but if it's sort of like, yeah, you just you know write this little short thing here, and you you know, copy and paste this and then modify this little segment and then you'll be good to go. Like a lot of times it is just that um, to, to kind of get what, get done what you need done. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So this is a new podcast. This is episode one. Um, <laughs> I'm still trying to figure out a good way to end this off. And, you know, I think, I think the, the way that I've put it together that we're, you know, this is super low key. We're going to talk mostly about data and informatics things, but yeah. I like that we're going to connect concepts to the elements. And what I mean by that is uh, the koi pond is a pond. We're using wa water as our element. And I think it might be cool to end with a, a, a different element or, you know, change it up each time. 
And um, this time I'm going to pick fire. And okay. I'm going to ask you, Mike, uh, officially, what's your thoughts on embers? Because this is your idea. I'm curious if you want to talk about it. <laughs> uh, oh, man. Uh so embers, embers to me are is, is a little bit like you know I, I think of clinical inf- informatics of sitting at the intersection of two very data driven disciplines. Uh, on the one hand, we come from the technology we, we we deal with the technology side where we have very rigorous A/B testing to understand you know human interactions and and what users are doing and 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 use that to drive sort of UI changes and UX changes. Um, and on the other side, we have evidence-based medicine, where you know we want to know uh, how what data supports treatments and interventions that we do with our patients. Um, clinical informatics historically has not had that same rigor from either of those data-driven disciplines, right? Like many times, we will implement things, give it a try, and we do. You know, we are data-driven. We'll do surveys, we'll do, uh, we'll talk to people, do measure the patient outcomes and quality. Um, but for for me, basically, Embers was potentially looking at, um, you know, passively measuring a lot of the impact of these of these changes using either access logs or activity logs or just things that people are doing in the system that um, are getting logged for one reason or another. Um, and embers would be, uh, these are like, this is what's left behind after, you know, the the clinical fire has swept through yeah. uh, and to understand what, what, what's been done. Um, and, and I think that would actually be a nice way of uh, almost creating sort of a evidence-based, infor- you know, clinical informatics, yeah. uh, or um, or sort of like I don't know. It's just it's sort of merging those two disciplines, right? Evidence-based medicine and, and A/B testing. And and you could argue that um, some aspect that also helps with the learning health system and the concepts yep. that that build from that. Where uh, mm-hmm. and and just to give the analogy, so and we can talk about this next episode uh, if we'd like. Yeah. But fire. Fast healthcare interoperability resources is the global standard for healthcare interoperability. And if you take yep. these data elements and you look at the things that are tied to that, like your access log queries or other things that help add to evidence-based medicine or your learning health system, those are your embers that you can use to better guide your practice. I love that yep. analogy. Um, and I'm giving you credit because you came up with it while we were setting up <laughs> our <laughs> initial testing in this. And uh, uh, you were so happy about that. I love that. So I don't know if we want to do this or not. Do we, do we want to, do you want to resurrect the uh, tech there? I don't know. Life hacks, life from, hacks. Uh, from our, from, from our, 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 our ASIF uh, podcast. Yeah. Do they still do life hacks? They, they do recommendations. Um, I see. Um, but we can do, yeah, we can do it. So my recent life hack is uh, I now have a dual screen phone. Um, which allows me to video conference and message at the same time or look up things, which I find really obnoxious. Like, especially, I don't like, I don't know how much you use Google Meet, but it's like, it just gets buried in your email and your Gmail app now. So it's hard to like go back and forth and find the meeting. So I find it much easier to like, um, switch. Now I don't have to switch screens. I can just keep the Google Meet up. Um, but then I have, uh, I still have my wallet on front, which is my favorite thing because now I don't have, I like for the last, 10 years I haven't had to carry, you know, wallet, keys and phone. Now it's just it's been it's been just phone and keys for a while now. That's awesome. That's <laughs> awesome. Um I guess I'll give a technical life hack or at least some of the tech that we use. Um and I will talk about I guess I'll talk about the clicker 
Should I talk about the clicker? <laughs> I'm going to talk about this clicker. clicker. <laughs> uh, so, Which you guys haven't heard because they've all been... Which you've never that. heard, yeah. So if you're doing a podcast and you are figuring this stuff out at the beginning and you want to save yourself a lot of time and you say something and you want to edit that down, give yourself a timestamp. There's my timestamp. Uh, and so that tells me that I can be a little bit faster as I'm heading in to modify the discussion that we had so that we can edit something down or make something a little bit shorter. It saves me time, it saves you time, and um, that comes from the My Brother, My Brother and Me's uh, book on making a podcast, uh, because that <laughs> family has done this for over 11 years, uh, and I love the stuff that they make, and I thought that was an excellent idea. So, yeah, thank you, uh, Mabimbam and the McElroy family, because <laughs> officially, now I got a clicker. Thank you. <laughs> so, awesome. link in the description below. <laughs> link in the description below. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, so, with all of that said, thanks for joining us on Code Embers. I'm John Manning. I'm Mike Wang. And take care, everyone. Stay safe out there. The intro and outro music is called Flutter by Jazzar, available under the CC by SA 4.0 license. This podcast is licensed similarly. 